What's good, y'all? It's Gene. So on Friday, November 16th, Shireen and I will be live at Harlem's world-famous Apollo Theater. It's part of the Work It Festival from WNYC Studios. We're going to be joined by the poet Denise Froman. We're hanging out with Marcus Samuelson, the head chef of Red Rooster in Harlem. Plus, we're going to have music from the percussionist and composer Bobby Sanabria. You can get your tickets at workitevents.com. That's workit, W-E-R-K-I-T, events.com. Can you see by the dawn's early light? Fergie, sis, what is you doing? What is you doing? Um, <laughs> that, of course, y'all, is Fergie singing the national anthem at the NBA All-Star Game back in February. And to be fair to your girl Fergie, our national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner, is notoriously hard to sing. It's really hard to do well unless you're like, you know, Marvin Gaye or Whitney Houston. And then there are the lyrics themselves, which are about this weird little battle near Baltimore during the War of 1812. And the backstory here is... The British put out a proclamation that would have freed enslaved black people who fought for them on their side and against the Americans. And so the third verse of the Star Spangled Banners, which we don't usually sing, is this lamentation about those formerly enslaved people going to fight during the war for the British Navy. And so this song, in a way, is a celebration of this American fort standing strong and tall against this enemy that would have, among other things, freed the enslaved? I mean... I guess, yay, America? I don't know. This is Code Switch. I'm Gene Demby. We're going to hear from Shireen in a second. Today, we are talking about anthems. So it's probably fitting, given what we know about the national anthem, that it has been the site of protest against racism in the United States for a long time. 50 years ago this week at the 1968 Olympics was when Tommy Smith and John Carlos put their fists in the air during the medal ceremony as the national anthem played. We all know about the contemporary protests against the criminal justice system by NFL players like Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed, or the soccer player Megan Rapino. But there are many, many anthems in American life. And today we're going to talk about two of them in particular. Our colleagues at NPR Music are doing this very dope series called American Anthem. And they're telling the stories of these powerful songs loaded with meaning that people in America rally around. And as it happens, my partner in crime, my co-host, Shereen Marisol Maraji, offered up her own entry into the series. And it's about a song that you've probably heard like a million times, but has a secretly fascinating history. La Bamba. It was the first song in Spanish to hit number one in the United States. But not this Richie Valens version. No, the year was 1987, and the band that took La Bamba to the top of the charts was Los Lobos. For our series, American Anthem, I'm going to spend the next few minutes talking about why this Spanish-language song with roots in Veracruz, Mexico, is still an enduring American anthem. We'll begin in the present, or at least the not-too-distant past. 
On an unusually cold and overcast Saturday in October last year, counter-protesters faced down neo-Nazis and white supremacists in Shelbyville, Tennessee. And the counter-protesters brought a sound system. Man, it was a nice one. It was loud. I'm afraid we may have damaged their hearing. Chris Irwin was one of the organizers. He's a public defender in Knoxville and says they used that sound system to drown out the speakers on the other side of the street with music. There's this guy we call Angry Santa. And Angry Santa is a KKK guy, unabashed. We've seen him at other rallies. And he starts talking about rounding up all you degenerate whores. And and it just occurred to me, I was like, let's try La Bamba. Da-da-da-da, La Bamba. The absolute best counter-protest I have ever seen. Trevor Noah saw a video of the rally online and talked about it on The Daily Show. A white supremacist gets up to give a speech. And he doesn't get punched. Someone just starts playing La Bamba. People were dancing on our side. And think about that. At Charlottesville, they murdered that woman with a car. They were violent. They came in with clubs and fire. And we had a 1,000 people show up, African-Americans, immigrants, Hispanics, brave people, and they're dancing and laughing at them. Even one of the Nazis can't help but dance along. Look at him. Look at him. Totally forgets he's wearing a Nazi helmet. Yeah, he's like, yeah, we're the supreme race, but that is the supreme beat. Come on. And he was dancing at a Nazi rally with KKK members to a song that was multicultural by its very nature and sound and beat. And when you hit a song and something like that happens, you know on a cellular level, this is something that's right for right now. This is it. As right as La Bamba is for these times, it's got a long, long history. Story goes that a 17-year-old Mexican-American kid from the San Fernando Valley named Richie Valens probably heard this version of La Bamba growing up, sung by Andres Huesca. It was popularized during the golden age of Mexican cinema, around the 1940s. If there's any one song that represents the Americas, it is this one song, La Bamba. Luis Valdez wrote and directed the 1987 film La Bamba about the life and death of Richie Valens. Valdez still doesn't know the exact meaning of the title of Valens' most famous song, but he did lots of research for the film and thinks it's a reference to something he calls Umbamba from Africa. And it was a beat. It was a sound. And that landed on the shores of Veracruz. Enslaved Africans were brought a few hundred years ago to Veracruz, Mexico. And because cultural fusion has long been a means of survival, African, indigenous, and Spanish traditions were all mashed up. And out of that mashup, a musical style was created called Son Jarocho. La Bamba is a Son Jarocho song. This strum to La Bamba? Alexandro Hernandez is an ethnomusicologist at UCLA and a musician himself. Listen to it when I mute it. Hernandez says that rhythm is the beating heart of Son Jarocho. It's, it's there. It's like embedded in the strum itself, too, because yeah. it is that Afro-Caribbean connection that's been there for hundreds of years, mixed in with a little bit of, of the Espanol and First Nations. Richie Valens took that style of folk music from Latin America and turned it into an anthem for the United States of America. 
His real name was Richard Valenzuela. He came of age when segregation was still legal in parts of the U.S., and kids were punished in school for speaking Spanish. Valen's version of La Bamba was actually a B-side, but it became a surprise hit, climbing to number 22 on the charts in 1959. Luis Valdez says Valens took that song to a whole new level. And to a whole new audience, because that audience was young at that time. They were teenagers, and they were hearing rock and roll. They weren't hearing Mexican folk music. They were hearing rock and roll. Rock and roll, a unique musical mashup that, like Son Jarocho, also has roots in slavery and colonization. A sound of survival, now totally synonymous with the USA. And Luis Valdez's film La Bamba brought that song to new audiences three decades later using a version by a band from East Los Angeles called Los Lobos. The Los Lobos version of La Bamba topped the charts by starting with rock and roll and ending with Son Jarocho. My parents are a big fan of Los Lobos, so I just remember hearing the Los Lobos version a lot in the car. Leah Rose Gallegos is a member of a band from Northeast LA called Las Cafeteras, and they've come to represent La Bamba's future, taking the song in a new direction, mixing son jarocho with influences from hip-hop culture. I met up with the band at their first practice space, Gallegos' parents' house in Highland Park, where they played me their version. Es la bamba now, Richie Valens sang that to dance La Bamba, you need a little grace. Denise Carlos sings, this is the rebellious La Bamba, because we're Chicanas from East L.A. I don't believe in borders. I cross them. Carlos says Son Jarocho is a style of music where the lyrics are always changing. That's encouraged. It's like freestyling in hip-hop. So La Bamba is constantly evolving. She and bandmate Hector Flores say their lyrics to the song represent how they're feeling right now. I will never be authentic to Mexico. I will never be authentic to this idea of Americanism. But I still belong and I still am valid. And our culture as Chicanos and Pochas is still valid. We're not from Veracruz. We're from right here. We L.A. kids. And we speak Spanish just as bad as we speak English. You know? like And like that allowed us to then be proud of La Bamba versus, oh, that's just how they box me up. And La Bamba follows them everywhere, on vacation even. Leah Rose Gallego says she was traveling in Thailand with her husband, who's also a member of the group, and they were invited to a karaoke birthday party. Everyone there knew they were American, and everyone had two requests. Do an Elvis song and do La Bamba. (laughs) (laughs) And we were like, okay. Let's do it. (laughs) Which one did you rock better? Oh, La Bamba, for sure. (laughs) I didn't grow up with that one. (laughs) Like that, huh? (laughs) 
Bandmate Hector Flores says he loves that story because it's just one example of how people around the world think a Spanish-language song made famous by Chicanos is an all-American anthem, especially right now. You know, and like, that's so dope to me. This song survived slavery, colonialism, and you're damn sure it's going to survive Trump because it lives within us. And we invite everybody to also make it yours. All my people in the place tonight, everybody come and sing along like this. When we come back, our play cousin Bilal Qureshi, a native Virginian, takes us south of the Mason-Dixon to talk about Dixie. Oh boy. Stay with us. The following message comes from our sponsor, Capital One. Would you know if someone applied for credit using your social security number? If not, listen to Joe Whitchurch, head of the CreditWise app, talk about the new SSN tracker his team recently released. While identity fraud is something everyone needs to be worried about, we want to make it easy and seamless for them to become aware of anybody attempting to use their identity without their knowledge or permission. CreditWise is free for everyone, whether you're a Capital One customer or not. You can find CreditWise in your app or Play Store now. Do you love trivia, puzzles, nerdy games, and humor? What about interviews with actors, musicians, and people from all walks of life? Yeah? Then join me, Ophira Eisenberg, host of NPR's Ask Me Another, every week on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. Gene, just Gene, code switch. All right, so let's turn to our next anthem, Bilal Qureshi, an NPR reporter who you've heard on the pod before. He's a play cousin of ours. He takes us to the Old South, to Richmond, Virginia. That's where he grew up. As you remember from our reporting, it's a town known for its Confederate statues. But he says one of the most enduring monuments to the Old South there isn't set in stone. And it might be America's most divisive song, Dixie, the rallying cry of the Confederacy during the Civil War. Here's below. When my Pakistani immigrant parents chose Richmond, Virginia as our American hometown, they didn't realize the city had a pre-existing condition. Nostalgia for the lost cause of the Confederacy. Growing up, the ghosts of the Old South were everywhere. Rebel flags waving from pickup trucks and Confederate monuments along the city's main avenue. For four years, Richmond was the capital of the Confederate States of America. And if that country had an anthem, it was Dixie. But the song was born in the North, says historian Ed Ayers, who lives in Richmond. Dixie actually was only created in 1859 as a minstrel show in Ohio, which people tend to forget that minstrelsy was the most popular art form in the United States white men in blackface, very often from the North, imagining happy enslaved people. I wish I was in the land of cotton, old times there I'm not forgotten. Look away, look away, look away, Dixieland. 
and parroting them at the same time that they are pretending to be them. So it's a very weird thing for people to have adopted as a national anthem of the Confederacy. The Confederacy was a pop-up nation, and its soldiers needed a song, says musician Brian Henderson. There weren't a whole lot of songs. There weren't anthems as such, and particularly about the South. And Dixie was a hot, popular hit. Henderson is at Gettysburg with the 2nd South Carolina String Band for the reenactment of the war's defining battle. After a long day of fighting, soldiers gather by candlelight under the big tent to close the night with Dixie. The tune is tremendously catchy. Whenever I hear it, I find myself humming it all day. It's really a wonderful song if you ignore all the racial and political overtones. Journalist Tony Horwitz is the author of Confederates in the Attic, a book in which he traced the enduring legacy of the lost cause. Horwitz says while Dixie can work inside the parameters of a reenactment, in real America, the song is tangled up with the history of racism and segregation. Dixie was part of the score of Birth of a Nation, the movie that helped revive the Ku Klux Klan. It was embraced by the segregationist Dixiecrats in the 1940s, and in the 1950s it was sung by white women protesting the integration of schools. And by the 1970s, it was on primetime, says historian Ed Ayers. Think of Dukes of Hazard. their horn plays the first notes of Dixie. But Dixie's biggest platform was the Southern Football Stadium, and nowhere more prominently than the University of Mississippi and its Pride of the South marching band. My name is Chris Presley, and I was the drum major for the Pride of the South marching band at Ole Miss. My first two years, I was playing Dixie with the marching band, and then my last two years, I was conducting the song. Chris Presley is African-American, and he says despite the song's divisive history, during games, Dixie could become a unifying anthem. Even though the song divided many people, I still saw everyone holding up their pom-poms, especially when we were winning during the song of Dixie. How, how many times would it be played in the course of a game? Oh, goodness. It really just depends on the football team during that game. You know, if we were winning, maybe 20 times. The band continued playing Dixie until two years ago, when the school finally stopped using it. I have always loved the song Dixie. That's jazz singer Renee Marie. As a black person, I knew that it was like, no, you cannot, you cannot sing this song because it's Dixie, Renee. But I thought, this is song is just about somebody who wishes they were back in their hometown in the South. I can identify with that. And so she sang it for the first time in Richmond. In Dixieland, I'll take my stand to live and die in Dixie. Marie says people were shocked, as if she'd used the most offensive racial slur. Oh, they sat back, you know, and folded their arms and crossed their legs like, what is this? Because honestly, Bilal, there are... There are certain emblems of this society that are just taboo. You know, the Confederate flag is anathema to African Americans, and for good reason. The word nigger is anathema, and the song Dixie is like the trap. 
the trifecta, you know. But in her arrangement, Renee Marie merges Dixie with a song that Billie Holiday made famous about lynching. Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves, and blood at the root. That's the juxtaposition, isn't it? And both songs are representative of what it's like living in the South. But that old South is fading. And I asked Renee Marie if it would be better if one of its symbols, Dixie, was best forgotten. No, do not try to erase it. I would say look at it. Find out what's going on with your country. And stop thinking that it's post-anything. It's not post-anything. It's all still right here in your face. I mean... <laughs> to use the vernacular, but yes, it's right here. Don't be misled into thinking that everything is fine. Back in Gettysburg, as the reenactors take a moment to step out of the sepia-toned past to reflect on the present news cycle, there are nods of agreement from one of them, Joe Whitney. What's happening today is very similar to what happened back then. You know, you had the breakdown in civil behavior, the breakdown in people hearing the other side and understanding and in a way, we want people to learn about this because history may not repeat itself, but it definitely rhymes, as they say. All of this history is a heavy burden to bear for a song that was intended to be nothing more than a jaunty pop tune. But Civil War historian Ed Ayers says Dixie could never be just a song. Once you live in the South, I've chosen to live here, you look around you see the ghost of the past everywhere around us. So I can never hear Dixie as anything other than the song that has accrued all these meaning over so many generations. Ayers says even if Dixie was expunged, it will always be an anthem in some American hearts, confined but never forgotten, alive and electric as only anthems can be. Bilal Qureshi, NPR News. Away down south in Dixie. All right, y'all, that is our show. But before we bounce, we want to hear from you about your anthems, the songs that get people hyped that rally them together for a cause. So tweet at us. We're at NPR Code Switch or email us at codeswitch at npr.org. As always, if you have any questions about race you want us to dig into, we love hearing from you. Email us with the subject line, Ask Code Switch. Follow us on Twitter, again, at NPR Code Switch. And sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash Code Switch. And subscribe to the podcast on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Maria Paz Gutierrez and edited by Sammy Yenigan and Tom Cole with engineering help from Josh Newell. And shout out to the rest of the Code Switch team, my co-host Sheree Marisol Maraji, who you heard, Walter Ray Watson, Leah Danella, Adrian Florido, Kat Chow, Kumari Devarajan, and Steve Drummond. Our intern is Andrea Henderson. And welcome to our new croc fellow, Mayawa Aina. I'm Gene Demby. Beezy, y'all. Hey, history buffs. You ever wonder why all network newscasters sound the same? or where the term white trash comes from? Is there something that you really, really care about that happened a long time ago that people tell you that you should just forget about? Well, yeah, we get that a lot. At NPR's Code Switch, we talk about race, and we draw from the past to help us understand the present with stories that might surprise you. So check out the Code Switch podcast every Wednesday.